The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking about the Supreme Court. We've all been thinking about how the election could bring a liberal majority if things go right. But David Cole, the nation's legal affairs correspondent, has a different way of understanding how the court works. He says citizen activists are a key force in making constitutional law. Also later in this hour, we're still thinking about Obama and his legacy and what to make of the good and the bad things he did. For that, we'll return to Gary Young, columnist for The Nation. But first, we need to talk about this week's primary in Wisconsin, which of course was key for both Democrats and Republicans. For that, we turn once again to our man in Madison, John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His brand new book is People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy. John Nichols, the results for Bernie were 56 percent, Hillary 43, 13 points. That that seems like a big margin to me. Actually, as the final results have come in uh, for Sanders, it now rounds to 57. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, and amazingly enough, in the last uh, count, you know, it took last night you had the initial returns, and the interesting thing about the way Wisconsin returns come in is they tend to come heavily from Dane County and Milwaukee and some of the urban centers. Some of the rural counties don't always get them in right away. Um, and interestingly enough, as the rural counties came in, Bernie Sanders swept even higher numbers. He is now, with 100% counted, won. 71 of the state's 72 counties. Oh, my gosh. He's won 57%, which is essentially roughly the same as what Barack Obama got in what was considered to be a sweeping victory in in 2008 against Hillary Clinton. He has um, also, interestingly enough, uh, even in the one county he didn't win, which was Milwaukee, the largest county, uh, he got over 48% of the vote. So it was a very close result there. He also won, notably, if the exit polls are correct, uh, around 42% of the non-white vote in Wisconsin. Now, I don't want to over-talk that, because I think it's, you should be conscious. He still lost the African-American vote in Milwaukee uh, and got about a third of the vote, similar to what happened in Michigan. He also... Uh, ran up really strong numbers in, you know, I could list a bunch of towns, but communities around the state that have substantial uh, Latino populations. Bernie once again did fantastically well with young people. 18 to 29-year-old voters, something like 81% voted for Bernie. And Bernie did fine with women. Women were basically 50% for Hillary, 49% for Bernie. That's that's impressive. But my question for you is is about the the black vote in especially in Milwaukee. You said Bernie lost by something like two to one. The upcoming primaries, especially in New York and the other northeastern states, these are mostly closed primaries, as I understand it, which means only registered Democrats can vote, no independents. Uh, blacks are, you know, the bedrock of democratic registration in in those uh, states. Why do you think Bernie didn't do better with blacks in 
in Milwaukee, and doesn't this bode ill for uh, what is to come over the next two weeks? Well, you have laid it out very, very well, and I think that uh, both your question and your observation within it are, are appropriate. So, first off, why didn't Bernie Sanders do better with African Americans in Milwaukee? Uh, I think it, it is the same reason that he has not done better with African Americans in a lot of places. The, there is a difference between some of the southern primaries that came early, uh, in which he was down, in some cases, below 20%, you know, really not getting uh, a particularly notable vote. It was actually quite, I think, a very, very serious issue. Uh, And as he's moved into the north, those numbers have gone up some uh, in Michigan and in Wisconsin, looking at something in a range of 30%. And, And that's significant. That is an improvement. But it certainly has not, you know, crossed the line. Uh, and that, I think, is, I think there's a number of reasons for that, all of them important. Remember, African-American voters are very serious voters because of experiences and of needs. And that doesn't make them different from other voters. We're all shaped by our experiences and our needs. But African-American voters have become very sophisticated in listening to the promises that are made to them and weighing those against experience. Do I know these people? Have I, have I had experience with you? Um, can I trust that if you do get elected, you're going to do you know, some of the things you say? Hillary Clinton is better known. The experience factor weighs on her side. And while Bernie Sanders makes uh, many pledges that are appealing, and I think actually have quite a bit of resonance, people do hear those as good promises, but coming from somebody they don't know as well. And so for Sanders, and I've said this for a very long time, you know, there just has to be more outreach. I mean, no matter, no matter how much outreach has been done, there has to be significantly more. And also, um, there is a, there's a vetting process, and this happens in any community. Uh, it is endorsements. In Milwaukee, Hillary Clinton had a, a fantastic endorsement, one of, the, one of the most critical endorsements you could get in the state from Gwen Moore, who is the congresswoman from Milwaukee. Uh, She is just a remarkable political figure who's been involved in politics there for decades. Uh, And more than that, really is just a, uh, uh, she's a relaxed, happy, strong politician, right? She's on the streets, she's with the people, she moves through the community uh, so effectively. And having her on your side is a big deal, right? Yeah. So Hillary Clinton had her, and, and... Gwen was very passionate. And similarly, you're going to look for patterns like that in New York and in Philadelphia. And uh, it is true that Bernie Sanders in New York will have some more African-American endorsements, but Clinton will continue to have those advantages. And so at at the end of the day, I will tell you that my gut instinct is that Hillary Clinton will continue to have an advantage with the African-American community. It will continue to be a challenge for Bernie Sanders. But it is a good challenge. Before we turn to the Republicans, I have one last question about the Democrats, and that's about the new voter ID restrictions, which went into effect uh, this week in in Wisconsin. Did the Republicans achieve their goal with voter ID of reducing Democratic turnout? We did see on TV those terribly long lines of of students. Uh, What's your sense of, of how voter ID restrictions impacted the Democratic turnout? 
I think it's. I think it was some impact. I don't think it was necessarily overwhelming, but it was very notable. Um, those lines were uh, both long and also uh, unsettling because you saw them at different times during the day. And you know, the fact of the matter is, if you're in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you take a break from your job, or you know, you're rushing after you finish your job to go. You know, pick up your kids at, at you know their after school activities, whatever. Uh, you don't have a lot of time. If you can't just go into that polling place and cast that ballot, there's a very good chance you're going to look at that line, which may even look a little chaotic, even though they were you know pretty well organized. So they can look chaotic from just coming in, and you might well just drive by, right? So you can never fully measure um, the impact of a poorly organized election, but what you should recognize is that uh, we saw tremendously long lines in Green Bay. We saw tremendously long lines in Milwaukee. Uh, these are places that, that historically have turned in a pretty good Democratic vote. Those lines in Milwaukee especially concerning uh, because, you know, when you looked at who was in those lines, you saw students, you saw uh, African-American moms, you saw, you know, just a variety of folks who, you know, I, I, you, know you can never judge people wholly, but you would think that there's a good chance these are Democratic constituencies. And um, and so I think you can suggest it's some impact. Finally, I would just suggest that uh, it's not just voter ID. Voter ID is a big part of this and not, nothing to be dismissed or nothing to be neglected. But they did something else in Wisconsin that is a very big deal, especially for working class folks. They limited early voting. They said you can't vote on weekends. They said you can't vote at night. You can't vote early in the morning. They made it very much kind of a nine to five thing. A little bit of flexibility in some places, but much less than we had traditionally had. Uh, that has a profound impact uh, in the African-American community, where in Milwaukee, as in many other cities, you have a souls-to-the-polls tradition, which is you know bringing people down to register and to vote on Sundays. Um, when, you get, when you eliminate early voting, that becomes much harder. It becomes much harder in student areas because you know traditionally there's been models of you know literally marching crowds of students on, you know, some afternoon or evening uh, or even a weekend day to, to, you know, the county clerk's office to go vote. All these things get upset when you narrow early voting. And what it does is it drives all these people, it forces all these people into those long lines on election day. There's no reason at all to limit early voting, and yet they did it. And I think you have to look at that as a part of suppression. Uh, because when I, I guess I should said it a little wrong. I said there's no reason to do that. There is one reason to do it, and that is if you want it to be harder for people to vote. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's what happened. Now I understand that Republicans also voted in Wisconsin this week. Uh, they did. A lot of excitement that Cruz got uh, 49, Trump 35, 14 point gap, but. On the one hand, Cruz is triumphant. On the other hand, doesn't Trump usually get around 35%? He did as well as he usually does, but he wasn't running against 17 other people. Yes. And suddenly uh, we see the different dynamic. I think there's folks who say, well, you know, Trump did so very well in early March and in, in you know, some, of these, some of these key primaries along the way. Why didn't everybody just drop out and give it to him? Well, because... Both John Kasich and Ted Cruz know that as you move into one-on-one contests or something equivalent to a one-on-one contest with uh, 
Donald Trump, there's a really good chance you beat the guy. It's not for sure, but there's a really good chance. And what you saw in Wisconsin was a perfect storm for Cruz, not something that's guaranteed to be repeated in other places. In fact, I don't think it will be. But Wisconsin is a very, very well-developed Republican political infrastructure. That political infrastructure was you know, put together with a lot of outside money, a lot of billionaire money from folks like the Koch brothers, to A, elect Scott Walker, then to defend him in the recall election in 2012, and to re-elect him in 2014. That infrastructure has been maintained. It doesn't go away. It has communications. It has organizing. It has staffers and offices on the ground. And when you put all those pieces together, what it does uh, is, at least to my view, uh, guarantee that you get a um, result. You get a certain kind of kind of result if you turn that machine on. That machine was turned on for uh, Ted Cruz, and you saw what happened. One one last question in the minute we have left here. I noticed that more people voted in the Republican primary than in the Democratic one. Something like a million in the Republic, more than a million around 950,000 in the Democratic primary. Is that a bad sign for November? Not particularly. It's a good sign for the Republican establishment. It shows that they're very, very good at mobilizing their folks in whatever election that they face. The simple reality is that in Wisconsin, we have a massive drop-off between presidential elections, the fall presidential elections, and uh, off-year elections, gubernatorial elections, things like that, and primaries. a good, at least a million more people, or better part of a million more people, are likely to vote in November. And an awfully lot of those people, a substantial portion of them, are likely to be uh, more Democratic-leaning voters than Republican-leaning voters. So if pattern holds, and if these voter ID laws and things like that don't really begin to, to mess up the system, uh, I think it's still a pretty good bet that Wisconsin remains a November presidential year Democratic-leaning state. That's significant, of course, for the presidential race, and especially in a year like this. But it also has relevance as regards the U.S. Senate race, where Russ Feingold uh, is seeking to retake the seat that he lost in 2010. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. John, thanks as always. Tremendous pleasure. Good to talk to you, John. The Supreme Court and us. For that, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent. He teaches constitutional law and also national security and criminal justice at Georgetown University Law Center. He's also a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. He's the author of eight books, most recently, Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. David Cole, welcome. Thanks for having me, John. Well, we all remember when Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died, we we all focused on the politics of Supreme Court confirmations. The Democrats' big hope is that our candidate will be elected and that the Democrats will also retake the Senate. And then in January, our new president will nominate a liberal successor to Scalia. The new Senate will confirm that nominee and then everything will be a lot better. Uh, your book suggests a different way of looking at the Supreme Court. Yes, yes, you say the 
The court majority makes the big decisions, but, you say, the Supreme Court is not the main source of constitutional change. This is, this is a surprising and radical idea. What is the main source of constitutional change? Well, it's us. Uh, it's, it's citizens who care deeply about um, fundamental values and, um, and work uh, together through civil society organizations over the long haul. Uh, to bring about the change that the Supreme Court then essentially uh, recognizes uh, and gives its stamp of approval to, but doesn't actually create. Well, in your book, Engines of Liberty, you have a, a couple of very vivid examples of how this works. One of them is guns, an issue one, of course, by the right wing. Now, now we have guns everywhere. We have guns on campus. We have guns in churches. We have open carry on the streets. We have stand-your-ground laws, great big guns designed for killing people on battlefields. Uh, And the NRA says, and the Supreme Court agrees, that guns everywhere uh, is what the founders meant when they wrote the Second Amendment about, quote, a well-regulated militia being the best security of a free state. They're talking about a state like California or New York. Uh, You remind us it wasn't always that way. The Supreme Court changed the meaning of the right to bear arms uh, over the last 25 years. What was it that Chief Justice Warren Burger said about the argument that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual right to bear arms? Uh, He he called it the, um, the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people. Uh, in his uh, lifetime, in in 1991. And that was, what, just like 25 years ago, the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on the American people. Uh, Warren Burger, was he a Democrat? He was was a Republican uh, appointed by uh, Nixon, uh, uh, a very conservative justice. Uh, Robert Bork, who who, uh, did not make it to the Supreme Court, also took the view that the Second Amendment protected only the rights of states and that there was no individual right. But what I show in the book is that the NRA didn't take that view, uh, and the NRA worked assiduously uh, in a variety of forums to advance the view of an individual right to bear arms. Uh, And it was that work um, from essentially the late 70s when the NRA uh, formed its political arm uh, to 2008 when the Supreme Court uh, finally acknowledged an individual right to bear arms. It was that work that the NRA did that really made that change possible. They They got states to change their constitutions. They got all kinds of gun rights laws passed in the state so that by the time it, the question came up to the Supreme Court, uh, the right to bear arms as an individual right was already recognized under the vast majority of the state constitutions, and it was a much smaller step for the Supreme Court to recognize it as a federal right. Well, I had the naive view that the NRA always made this the center of their politics, and it was just a waiting game until uh, there was a Republican majority uh, on the court. Uh, But you showed that actually the NRA at one point wasn't organized to uh, change constitutional law. Oh, no, no. The NRA goes way back to uh, uh, after the um, 
It was founded after the Civil War by some Union generals who were astonished at how bad uh, marksmen the, the, the Union fighters were. It was essentially a marksmanship organization, a hunting organization, uh, not a, a particularly political organization. It was really only after the Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, the first major piece of federal gun legislation was enacted, uh, that the NRA took on a kind of political character and made this its fight. And as I said, it, it focused on the states, very smart move, because that's, of course, where most of the laws are that regulate guns. Uh, it also could pick its states. It started in the, uh, in the, in the red states, especially in Florida, uh, and then would take its victories from one state uh, to the next. It funded uh, academics to do research, to develop uh, more evidence for an individual right to bear arms in the originalist uh, uh, history. It uh, encouraged um, uh, Congress to uh, recognize uh, an individual right to bear arms and lobbied them to do so, and they did, in fact, in two pieces of legislation before the Supreme Court did so. Uh, and it got, uh, after it helped get President Bush elected and John Ashcroft was named Attorney General, it got the Justice Department to reverse its longstanding position that the Second Amendment did not protect an individual right to bear arms. And it did all of this before uh, the, the case went to the Supreme Court, and I think uh, all of that was critical to uh, the victory that they, they ultimately obtained. In your book, Agents of Liberty, you have a, a second uh, example of how citizen activists have changed the Constitution. Gay marriage, the biggest surprise victory at the court in, in decades. It seemed at the time that maybe we were just lucky that Justice Kennedy betrayed the people who sent him there, or, or at least that he was convinced by the powerful arguments made by the advocates of, of gay marriage. Or, or is there some larger lesson here? I think there's a much larger lesson. I mean, you know, as I said, in, in 1972, the court dismissed a, a, a claim uh, that the Constitution recognizes a right to marriage equality in a single sentence, saying it didn't even raise a substantial federal question. 2015, the court recognizes a constitutional right. And the, the, the Supreme Court of 2015 was, if anything, more conservative than the Supreme Court of 1972. So what changed was not, you know, the membership of the court so much as the um, the the underpinnings of pu public and elite opinion about the status of gays and lesbians in our society and about the um, the meaning of their uh, desire to marry and whether it was uh, worth recognizing and the way it changed was again through the work of civil society through groups like Lambda Legal Defense Fund and GLAD uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders in in Boston uh, and the ACLU Lesbian and Gay Rights Project and a whole host of uh, of, of other organizations that um, engaged in very strategic incremental reform over um, decades uh, to create uh, a climate, a uh, political climate, a cultural climate in which this argument, which was unthinkable in 1972, um, became I inevitable in 2015. The arguments, uh, you know, the, the sort of substantive arguments made didn't change between 1972 and 2015. What changed was the ground. And who changed the ground uh, were these organizations. Again, as with the NRA, by focusing their 
efforts in the states. They didn't file cases in federal court making constitutional arguments because they would lose. Instead, they went to states. They first sought domestic partnership recognition, uh, revision of family law to recognize uh, gay parent adoption and the like, uh, and only then started to push for uh, recognition of civil unions and ultimately marriage, and started in the most liberal states and sought to um, migrate those victories to other states and eventually got enough momentum that the thing jumped the tracks and they could uh, prevail in, in constitutional, uh, uh, under federal constitutional law in the Supreme Court. And of course, along the way, there were a lot of defeats in state legislatures. Uh, and they, wh- how did we manage to get around those? <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a, yeah, that was a whole other part, right? So even when they, when gay rights groups were able to succeed in in state courts, um, the battle was not over. They often had to then fight to defend those victories in state referenda. And, of course, most famously in in California, where the California Supreme Court recognized the right to gay marriage, the people of California in Proposition 8 overturned that decision. And uh, and gay rights groups spent $40 million on that campaign and lost. But what I show in the book is that they they used that loss and learned from that loss and altered their strategies and particularly changed the way that they argued for marriage equality in the next set of referendums. And in 2012, they won uh, on all in all four um, states where uh, marriage equality was uh, was a was a referendum issue because they shifted their 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 rhetoric and their focus from a focus on rights and tangible benefits and analogies to the to to the civil rights movement, which sort of analogized those who had doubts about marriage equality uh, to racists. Uh, not a very good way to. Uh, encourage people with doubts to come to your side. Uh, And then they shifted to a a strategy that talked about love and commitment and talked about uh, and and featured uh, heterosexual spokespeople, the the older, the more Republican, the more military veteran, the better, uh, speaking about their own doubts, uh, but also pointing to somebody in their family who was gay or lesbian and saying, you know, I think, uh, you know, Joni should have the same right to express her love and commitment to her partner as as my wife and I have ha- have had for the last 40 years. And those those messages were very, very powerful and much more effective at reaching out to the people who they needed to reach out to um, those on the fence. Uh, and they and, and they succeeded uh, remarkably in 2012. The book is Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. The author is David Cole. David, thanks for the good news and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me, John. We're still thinking about Barack Obama as the end of his presidency approaches. So we went back to Gary Young to talk about the last eight years, about our hopes and our disappointments. Gary, of course, is a columnist for The Nation and the award-winning editor-at-large for The Guardian. He's covered American politics for 12 years. We reached him again in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You write in The Guardian, when it comes to Obama, people have to own their disappointment. What does that mean? Well, 
first of all, it doesn't mean that the disappointments might not be valid. That, so they may, they may well be valid. But that people projected onto Obama all sorts of things. Now, some of that he asked for. You know, he, his rhetoric was soaring, his metaphors related to the civil rights movement, the suffragettes, the labor movement. You know, he stood rhetorically in a tradition of change agents and transformative uh, figures, even though his actual program was mainstream Democrat. But then people assumed all sorts of things. So on the night in the president's lounge, when, you know, on election night, his victory is announced and a woman turns to me and says, my man is in Afghanistan. He's coming home. Oh. And I think, no, he never said that. No. He never said no. that. And that people, I still hear people saying now, you know, um, you know, I think he was more left-wing than he's been. I think, he, you know, he just had to play it careful. And I just think, well, how would you know? Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this te attempt to um, psychoanalyze him, almost. I, I was teaching at Brooklyn College and um, trying to get the students to critique Obama, and um, many of them wouldn't. And I remember a woman saying, you don't know what's in his heart. I said, you know, unless you're his cardiologist, you don't know what's in his heart, too. We can, all, all we can talk about is what he's done. Yeah. And that my experience of generally trying to have the conversation about Obama is that he's not a guy where people say, well, your glass, glass is half empty or half full. It's either that their cup doth run us over or that they are reaching for the glass to smash it because they think there's poison inside it. Right. So that the kind of um, people don't seem to be able to have kind of have rational conversations about what he did or what he wanted to do. And so then there come these disappointments that they thought things would be so different. And they thought outside the realities of American politics, which is, you know, money chooses the candidates and the seats are gerrymandered and the Senate has an inherently conservative bias and can block an awful lot of things. And so, without massive pressure from below, where they thought this change was going to come from was not clear. But it certainly wasn't in the substance of the things that he said. In his actual platform, he was a fairly mainstream Democrat. He wasn't... There wasn't a huge amount of difference between him and Hillary Clinton in terms of their programs, really. Well, just speaking for myself, part of the disappointment for me came from reading his book, Dreams from My Father, which gave me the idea that he understood the sufferings of poor America because of that long section on his work as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. This was a guy who'd come out of community organizing in, uh, in Chicago. And that was important enough, uh, you probably remember, for the Republicans to ridicule at their convention in 2008. Sarah Palin, giving her first speech ever on national TV, said, quote, I guess a small-town mayor is sort of like a community organizer, except that you have actual responsibilities, close quote. And the Republicans went wild, and we all thought, we've got a community organizer going to Washington. This is going to be different. Yeah. 
so there were um, uh, certainly he gave a sense that he was in touch. Yeah, that he had lived it a bit before he went back to school and got his law degree. And for me, the thing was the um, Iraq War. Yes, he's a very ambitious man. He comes out against the Iraq War at a time when that does not look like a career advancing thing to do. And um, I think anybody who got that war wrong doesn't deserve to be put back in power. So that's why I thought he was a better choice than, uh, than Clinton. But there are other elements of his history. It's not in Dreams My Father, but he challenges Bobby Rush in Chicago. Yeah, Bobby Rush is a, you know... Uh, uh, former Black Panther. Yeah, he's the real thing. Um, he's the real the thing. Real, yeah, and one, you know, one may be able. Reasonable people can disagree about how effective a congressman he's he's been. But if you're going to challenge somebody, why challenge Bobby Rush? Mm. Uh, and so um, there'd been signs that for all of the ways in which he understood, clearly understood the way power works. Uh, from dreams from my father, that he wasn't a, a man of the left by any manner of means. I tell you, the scene that really got me from dreams of my father is when Harold Washington comes to speak to people from his uh, community there in Orgel Gardens, and he's primed them to make demands from from Washington and to, you know, to hold him to account. Instead, they kind of um, gush and giggle, and he he's fuming, and he says, um, and I'm quoting, here we are with a chance to show the mayor that we're real players in the city, a group he needs to take seriously, and what do we do? We act like a bunch of starstruck children. And that's what I feel like some of, some of his supporters <laughs> did, uh, ex- ex- exactly that. For some reason, I've been very interested in in the White House galas during the Obama years, and I I noticed that his first East Room gala featured Earth, Wind, and Fire singing Shining Star. One of the last big ones was at the Kennedy Center a couple of weeks ago where Aretha Franklin sang to him, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Uh, the, the line is, uh, when I knew I had to face another day, Lord, it made me feel so tired. And the camera showed tears on Obama's face. Call me a romantic, but I thought that meant something. Well, that's it. And that's, that's why I think it's really important to understand and own the symbolism, you know, and, and understand that that's what it is. And then just divorce it from the substance, <laughs> in a way, okay. because the symbolism is huge. And, and once again, it's not just race. He's a handsome man. It's a young family. His wife is brilliant and dynamic. They feel comfortable in their skin. In the piece I described, it's kind of Camelot without the castle. It works in black and white. It works in color. There is a kind of different kind of energy. People like him don't usually get to the White House. And there's something about him that remained very down-to-earth, that remained to the frustration of many of his colleagues. He didn't take on a huge amount of, you know, the presidential social scene and all of that. And so 
yeah, when you've got Aretha in there or Earth, Wind & Fire or, you know, pictures of him with kids or him and Michelle dancing with a 106-year-old lady. It's incredibly moving, powerful symbol of the kind of um, human, of his humanity. What's difficult is also knowing that, you know, in that week or around that week, you know, he smoked how many people in Somalia, yeah. you know? I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we can't keep those two things in our head at the same time. There are scenes that will choke you up. It is not nothing that a black man got to the White House. But that once we've accepted that it's something, we have to try and be as clear as we can be about what it is and what it isn't. And, you know, he applied for the job of the American president. That already means for all of the lectures about black kids and gun violence and all of that kind of stuff, that already means in that job he's going to kill more people than Biggie and Tupac ever did. Mm -hmm. It already means that he's going to be at the head of the most powerful and violent military in the world. That's his job. That's the job he stood for. So we shouldn't even really be surprised by that. But we would be in a curious position if we were to lose ourselves in the style, the really stylish way in which he managed to perform that role. Uh, if we were to lose ourselves in that so completely that we forgot what he did. Gary Young, read him at The Nation and The Guardian. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Oh,